Father in heaven, <clears throat> the fact that we can walk in here and say, Father in heaven, and first be able to be heard uh, wherever you are because of the work of the Holy Spirit, so that wherever we pray, our prayers are heard by you and lifted up uh, through the intercession of Christ. What an amazing thing that is. And even more amazing that we can call you Father, as Jesus himself said, um, because of what he's done. We now access you not simply as the creator, but as our Father. And that position of immense privilege that we can talk to you anytime, in any place, anywhere, and that you hear us, and you hear us not with a scowl, but with the smile of a loving Father who accepts us, is an amazing thing. Father, we want to learn more about what it is, uh, about this relationship and what it means. We want to learn more about how we can live a life that uh, is pleasing to you and that reflects that family relationship with you. Help us, even in this time of coffee and questions, to be able to do that very thing, that we might deepen our understanding and deepen our love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, the very last coffee and questions for this month is on. So you guys set the stage for Sunday school. Do we have questions? Matt? What do we got? So I'm reading through Exodus very slowly. I my All right, very good. So this is um, Exodus 14. We looked at verses 15 through 29. And Matt's question has to do with uh, just basically what is going on here. So I think by reading it, it pretty much tells us straightforward what's going on. Um, the people are up against, now it says here, the Red Sea. We're not 100% sure. Um, if that really is the correct translation, these more traditional translations will say that. It could be the Sea of Reeds. It could be all sorts of things. There have been attempts to try to explain it as having been essentially a little stream, you know, somewhere. And that um, so-called east wind and all that just made it so that low tide came in and the people were able to cross. And that stream became more of a, of a river or something that destroyed the Egyptians. I'm going to say, yeah, that's not really a good answer. And there's a good number of reasons for that. Uh, the Egyptians were not stupid people. Um, yes, they were ancients. They built the pyramids. No, they did not do it with the help of the aliens. They built the pyramids. These were smart people. Their military was the greatest military on earth at that time. They were very capable. Uh, they knew how to cross rivers. Okay, so... Um, and the size of the army would not have been taken out by, you know, a typical type of river that just uh, now had high tide. They would have seen the high tide coming in. wouldn't have happened all in one shot. You know, there's a lot of things that just say, no, that's not going to work. That they were fooled into saying, this is a miraculous thing, this big old opening, but we'll go into it, and then it comes upon them, that fits a whole lot more. So... Uh, as far as what's actually happening, I think the text is, is right on target. Uh, you see that the whole desire was for God to, again, show he delivers his people. That's the number one key thing in this. It's not even so much the miracle and so on. The miracle is only to that end. And you had the, the pillar, which if you're not really familiar or really haven't looked at that in a while, we've got to remember the role of the pillar, the cloud by day, you know, the fire, uh, pillar, the fire by night. This idea that God was leading them directly by his presence and this idea of this cloud representing his glory and so on. 
it speaks of it here as the angel of God. Now, anytime we see the angel of God or the angel of the Lord, what does that normally tell you in the Old Testament? Anybody? A a pre-incarnate what? A theophany of the second person of the Trinity, and I heard over here somewhere. Christophany, okay. So anytime you see the angel of the Lord, you know, uh, that kind of language, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity in action. Uh, so I, it's not Jesus. Jesus is not born. What? what is it? Are you saying that Jesus is not God? No, I'm saying Jesus is God, but Jesus the man has not been born. So when we see Abraham talking with uh, the angel of the Lord plus two other angels who are clearly subordinate to him, he is talking to the second person of the Trinity. So that what we see here is the cloud in some way positions itself between God's people and God's people's enemy. And that's, I want to put it in those terms, Israel and Egypt. These people had enslaved God's people. God is delivering them. And he puts themselves between his people and the enemy. And it's very interesting because it even then foreshadows. The whole Exodus, of course, which is the redemptive, as you've heard me say, the redemptive event par excellence of the Old Testament foreshadows what Jesus does in which he delivers us not from simple physical slavery to a human power, but our slavery to sin, as Paul talks about in Romans uh, chapter 6. Jesus talks about in John chapter 8 that everyone who commits sin becomes a slave to sin. And so Jesus delivers us from that. And how? By putting himself between the enemy of sin and death and everything that's kept us from being in God's um, good graces and ourselves. So even here, you already have a picture of Jesus uh, interposing. It's already looking forward to that. So the second person of the Trinity puts himself in that position while the people are delivered. And as far as what's actually happening, I mean, I think it's, it's as clear as the text says. Um, I think it is in, in, in the uh, Cecil B. DeMille version where you actually see them walking in water. I can't remember now. But there's a little bit of water as they walk. It's not completely dry. Or am I off on that? Anybody remember? It's one of, I, I think it's the only re- okay um, just trying to remember there's one one pretty common one that I've seen out there where they're you know walking in ankle uh, deep water but it doesn't say that it says you know it pushed the water back and the, and the water is dry uh, and rather the land is, is dry and the water forms a wall and that, in that regard I think Cecil B. DeMille did a good job in representing that in some way this is not your normal, you know, low tide just went out. Because when it says there's, there's a wall there, uh, it's not just simply, I mean, I, there's a place in Florida, uh, Crandon Park, uh, a lot of sharks, a lot of good diving. And anyway, uh, it has these sandbars. Uh, just, and so when the tide goes, comes in, you just go from the beach onto the water. It looks like a normal beach. When the tide goes out, all these sandbars appear. And you can walk, you go under the water for a little bit, and then you're on the sandbar and so on. There, there's not walls, you know, when the tide goes out. You can look and say, you know, the water's now over there, and I'm over here on dry land, and later the water will come back in, and dry land will be, you know, down there again, and I'll be floating up here. It's not like that at all. So I think you really do have something truly miraculous, again, prefiguring the truly miraculous 
role of, of what Christ does for us. And then, of course, you read the rest of it, and uh, <clears throat> once they cross over, uh, the, the angel of the Lord pulls back. The uh, Egyptians pursue, and this was God's strategy all along. He knew that they would do that, um, pursues, and then he closes the sea upon them, and they're destroyed. So I think it's pretty clear text. What I'm, I guess what I want to ask, Matt, is where do you see an incongruity with, like, for example, when you say a popular depiction that makes us wonder what really happened? Yeah, for that I would like to be able to project a map on on here and be a little harder to tell you all. Look in the back of your Bibles; you may or may not have those maps, and you'll see different um, uh, different depictions. Generally, you know, we just kind of this is going to be my map. (laughs) You guys get to deal with this. So if if you just kind of look at okay, that one's out. Next. Let's try blue. So, you know, if you look at Egypt, and yeah, this is very, you know, much not, not what it looks like. It's more roundish, actually. It dips, and then you have that. Um, and that's going to be Israel. There's the desert, and there's... Egypt. Actually, this reaches a little bit lower, right? I tell you, that's what I, this is like a teapot, doesn't it? So you put, but you know, what would later become Israel, Canaan? So where do they leave? A lot of that has to do with where were they at? And you know, the Nile comes here, and there's all sorts of places. Were they here? You know, were they down here? Were they down here? All sorts of speculation. You know, oh, Goshen is probably here. And the next guy, because you got these guys, they're, they're writing their PhD papers, so they have to do something new. So, oh, no, Goshen is over here. We've got all sorts of uh, different things. And, you know, there's some other water sources, so do they cross and hit... You look at the map, and there's all sorts of questions of where they were. Is Sinai down here, right, as some maps will show you? Or is Sinai up here, as some maps will show you? We have no idea. It's all speculation. So that's part of the problem is exactly where do they, they go. So if you look at the back of your Bible, and it has, you know, the missionary journeys of Paul and all that other stuff, you'll find a guess as to how they kind of worked their way this way and made their way that way. And, and more than likely, I think, given the timetable, it did not take them long to reach Canaan, as you know. It's not like they were 40 years. 40 years was because they got there and then they disobeyed and God kept them from being able to defeat the people and go into Canaan. Nobody wanted to live in the desert. That was fairly sparse and unpopulated. And that's where they were for the 40 years. But it did not take them long from their escape from wherever that was, or deliverance would be more proper, to getting to the borders of Canaan. So more than likely, they were closer to the northern edge than it. But even down here, it still worked. I mean, you just add a week or two to your journey. So how's that to say we basically don't know? No, that helps a lot because I think, we know that there's lots of different opinions. Yeah. 
I think what we do want to go is uh, we want to affirm what we do know and what is in the text. And where you do see a lot of speculation that I think is wholly unnecessary and ultimately harmful to you is the dating of the Exodus, right? So the dating of the Exodus, when you look at it, is based on, to some very minor extent, on extra-biblical records. That is, you can look at Egyptian records. Now, the Egyptians never, if you read their own records, they were never defeated, ever. So whenever they present, you know, their history, it's always told in the very, very best light. Um, so there are examples of things that you can look at and say, was that when this happened, or is that when this happened? And it's funny to find them, uh, the secular scholars uh, who will sit there and admit what I just said, and then say, well, there's no record of, of this great defeat of Pharaoh and his um, forces. Well, yeah, that's right. And there isn't then a record of their defeat by anyone else. So, and the Egyptians were defeated from time to time. Uh, their biggest defeat probably being the one in Carchemish uh, at the hands of the Assyrians that finally broke their back and ended their, um, I'm sorry, the Babylonians, and ended their uh, even reign as a minor from that point on, they're under subjugation by everyone else. And they become a prize, like, like India was for the British Empire. So, you know, uh, uh, you, there's a lot of stuff in the press right now about, um, what's her name, Cleopatra, because I guess there's a movie or something. And they've played uh, a black actress. And I'm sorry, she's black. African-American doesn't work for me. So it's, she's black because we're talking about skin color. Because African-American, Elon Musk is African-American, right? So... Um, She's a black actress, and then there's a lot of people saying, well, of course she was black, and the reason people don't want to portray her black. She was not black. Egyptians are not black. But she was not Egyptian. She was Macedonian. So she was pretty white. Uh, that has nothing to do with, you know, white people being better or black people being better or whatever. It's just a historical reality. She was from Macedonia. She was in there along with all the other people who had been ruling over Egypt at least as, since 300 uh, 25 B.C. So, um, you know, that's just the way that is. Um, all that <clears throat> to say that um, we can get a little bit of information from the Egyptian records themselves as to the dating of it, but very little because they never put in their defeats. So that doesn't help us as much. What we have to do then is look at what uh, Paul and others say in regards to the time that they spent from the time of... Um, uh, Joseph, and so on, going down to Egypt and the time of the Exodus. And we have numbers about 400 to 430 years. Sometimes Paul is rounding, and so you don't, you don't have the exact numbers. But there's certain things that we can look at. So you can date Abraham around 2,000. Now, there's been a desire to push him later, uh, if, he even, if he even exists, according to these. But let's just say around 2,000 seems to work pretty well. That puts Joseph at around 1,800, which actually, this is B.C., obviously, 1,800 B.C. That fits in pretty well with uh, something that we read about in the Egyptian accounts that talks about uh, a shepherd people coming in and um, even for a while being in command, being in control. Uh, that makes sense because Joseph is... Uh, uh, the, the, the vizier, if you want to use, you know, Aladdin, that kind of language, uh, that kind of language that would fit with the, the right-hand man. Um, 
So we can date the Exodus then based on that and a few other things in the, chrono- in the Chronicles and other things that Paul says to about 1446 B.C. Some people say it's 1445. Some people say it's 1444 or even 1440. But you're pretty much in the 1440s. And it pretty much works if you, if you look at the biblical data. Lines up really nicely. There's very little question of it except for one thing. And that is in Exodus, I'm not quite sure exactly where, but earlier in the book, uh, you know, probably very early on, it speaks of two cities where the people were working, and that was Python and Ramses, P-I-T, not Python with a Y, P-I-T-H-O-N, Ramses. Now, Ramses doesn't come around until the 1200s, not the 1400s, 1200s. Actually, Ramses II, and he's considered very powerful and blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the idea then is, well, that dates that as much, much later because they could not have, the Jews could not have built those cities until Ramses was around. And so therefore they're pushing it to the 12th century, but doing that, uh, or 1200s rather, uh, but doing that does violence to all the actual biblical numbers that we have. So which one gives? They're both in the scripture. The numbers you can't play with, but the names you can, because we see this happen elsewhere in scripture where names get updated to the people's reading. And so we do the same thing, right? Where's the city of Troy today? Say again? St. Peter's. Well, actually, St. Petersburg becomes... Yeah, and, and, and on and on and on. Um, but yeah, if I ask you for ancient stuff, where's Troy today? Yes. What city? You all know it. Istanbul. Right? That, that, Istanbul, right? Because it becomes um, uh, Constantinople later, uh, Byzantium, and but even I'm forgetting something between Troy and... Uh, Constantinople is in the 300s AD, so there's uh, another name for it, and I'm not uh, remembering that right now, but yeah. Um, and so you would sit there and say, uh, you know, uh, in, in Istanbul, right, you would refer to something like that. You'll find these ruins. You don't say in Troy, which became, which, which became, which became, which became. So that's probably more than likely what's happening in the reference to Python and Ramses. They get updated to the more modern names. And that was not um, uncommon where they would build something, some other king would add to it, and that kind of stuff. And so, more than likely. The reason I say that's harmful to you is um, 50 years ago, no evangelical even touched the dating, uh, putting it in the 1200s, because that did violence to the actual mention of when Paul says 430 years, and he says that in Galatians. Uh, as you go further and further, you know, uh, from that point on, by the 80s, you got some evangelicals beginning to say, well, you know, we have to look at these, the liberals say this, and conservatives say that, and, and it's not we say this, but some here say this, and some here say that. And now you look in your, your study Bibles, and both are being presented as, um, uh, well, 25 years ago, they were being presented, just like I said, the dating is probably this, some people will say that. Now it's being presented as two equally uh, valid options that you pick from. 
But the only way you can pick uh, the 1200s again is to say, well, Paul was wrong. And I have a real problem saying Paul is wrong. So, okay, that's not what you were asking. But for me, I think it's just much, much better to affirm what we do have, even if we don't know precisely where Sinai is, Sinai is precisely, whether it was the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. There's uh, a lot of ambiguity uh, in that. In that. And, of course, you look at that and you say, well, it's just the easiest thing to sit there and say is it never happened because, you know, we can't find it. For years, years, uh, the liberals from about 1870s on, biblical text is not uh, um, uh, trustworthy. There are no mentions of the Hittites in the biblical records. The Hittites, which, you know, are mentioned in the Scripture. No, we have nothing... We can't find anywhere outside of the biblical records mention of the Hittites. There's no archaeological evidence. Or something like that. And then they find it in Turkey. And all of a sudden, ah. So the problem with Christians is if we, if we walk around waiting for archaeological evidence, yeah, don't. Because sometimes things get wiped out, you know. Um, and there's going to be virtually nothing. It, there could be things that you look at and say that could be, might not be. You know, definitive stuff is actually a lot harder to find, despite whatever you might see in Indiana Jones. So, no, I mean, if you guys saw the new movie, uh, and you don't, I won't give anything away, but at one point there's a skeleton underwater. That's all I'm going to say. And this skeleton is 2,000 years old underwater. And it's perfectly sitting there in the boat waiting for him to just take whatever it is the skeleton is holding. Yeah, and that looks great in all the movies because you want to see, you know, you want to walk into the tomb and see a fine layer of dust, but we all know it doesn't, doesn't even come close to working that way. You can leave your house for 10 years, and it's going to look like garbage, let alone 2,000. So, Okay, uh, I don't think we have time for one more question, unless it's really short. Okay, that's a good question. So, um, again, I've been asked to repeat these things for the sake of whoever's recording. So when we look at people claiming they found Sinai or the Ark or any... And, and by the Ark, you probably meant... Noah's Ark, not, not the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, that's even a longer stretch. But, you know, what validity should we place on that? To what extent should we be cautious or embrace and so on? Uh, I'll simply say this. What would happen if we could find definitively, definitively Mount Sinai? I mean, it was just absolutely clear. This is Mount Sinai. This is where God appeared to Moses. This is where later he brought the people. This is where the covenant was first, you know, uh, put forward to uh, to God's people, and this is where the elders went up, Exodus 24, and ate with the, There's no doubt this is it. What would happen? What's that? Uh, there may very well be that, yeah. Um, I, I, hadn't th- I hadn't thought about that, the, the more uh, violent aspect of people fighting over it. What, um, I'm thinking of something else, even capitalistic stuff, you know, but, um, but just how about simply veneration, right? The Jews today go to uh, uh, some brick and mortar of what's left of um, Herod's temple, and they venerate that. Can you imagine if this is the spot where Moses was? And then Christians would go, what happens when I, if I go to, I can go to a church down the street here, and I can take out a little piece of wood and say, this is from the cross, and what happens? We bow down to it. We do all sorts of stupid things to it, you know, and everything. I can take a little piece of chicken bone and say, this is St. Peter's, you know, uh, clavicle or something. And people, oh, you know, that kind of thing. 
So I think there's a reason why we don't have Noah's Ark or know exactly where Mount Sinai is or any of those things, because what does Jesus tell the woman at the well? Right? She's like, you guys, um, we worship here on Mount Gerizim. You guys are over there saying that we ought to worship on that mountain, Jerusalem, which is the right one. And he's like, it's not the story anymore. The story is me. You focus on me. So even as I open my prayer, not even realizing that's what we were going to be asked about, I'm talking about how we can be anywhere and we can talk to the Father through Jesus. That's where the focus needs to be. So, okay, let's stop there. Um, Dave probably wants to uh, get ready for, for today. Uh, keep your questions for next week. That was good. Uh, and again, I say if you have questions you want to send me via uh, text as well to get going, that's a, that's a good thing to do. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you delivered your people uh, some 3,500 years ago. Um, the exact details um, seem to be up in the air, uh, but what you have told us is just what we need to know, that you intervened in delivering your people from something which, from which they completely lacked the ability to do, that you gave them true freedom, that you brought them into a proper relationship with you uh, through that event. And, Father, we know that, of course, it points to what Christ has done for us. Uh, thank you, Father, for these object lessons that make so clear uh, what it is that Jesus has done. May we have a greater appreciation for it. And while we do want to pursue uh, the historical knowledge and uh, because these things are true and really did happen, uh, may we not miss the point, uh, you know, as they say, miss the forest for the trees. Thank you, Father, for the depth of, of what you tell us in Scripture. And thank you for your wisdom and withholding things because you know how idolatrous our hearts are. Help us now as we go into worship to set aside all those things which are indeed idolatrous, those things which we sometimes focus and put our hope on. And instead, let's put our hope on Jesus Christ. And we pray this, Father, in his name. Amen.